The Bain Free Radio Hour. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. Today, we take you on a journey of colonization all the way to the Red Dwarf star Ross 248. Sean Patrick Hazlett sat down with editors Les Johnson and Kinroy to discuss their all-new blend of stories and essays, The Ross 248 Project, which asks and answers the question, what would it take to build a colony around this star? Joining them were contributors K.S. Daniels and D.J. Butler. Their discussion in just a moment, but first, the news. June is just around the corner, and that means the mass market paperbacks are soon to hit bookstore shelves. Let's take a look. First up is Fair Trade by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Jethry Gobelin has inherited a mission from his father, but the mission will be a test of his loyalties as he's thrust into a tangle of gray trading, mistaken identity, misinformation, and galactic politics. Next up, we have Abbott in Darkness by DJ Butler. A job for a wealthy interstellar corporation turns deadly for a man at the end of his rope. With no way back to Earth, the only direction for John Abbott and his family to go is forward into danger. And finally, we have the anthology Time Troopers, edited by Hank Davis and Christopher Rocchio. It's zero hour in whatever time stream, so grab your time-appropriate weapon, be it sword or ray blaster, buckle on your general-issue time porter belt, and follow the time troopers into action across strange eons. That's Fair Trade, Abbott in Darkness, and Time Troopers, all available this June in mass market paperback. And that's it for the news. I'm here with Les Johnson, Ken Roy, Kimberly Constantino, and last but not least, David Butler. Today, we're here to talk about the Ross 248 Project Anthology. And before I get started, let's just go around the horn. Les, tell us about yourself and and what you do. And what I do. Oh, boy. <laughs> hey, I'm Les Johnson. I am a physicist by education. Uh, I write uh, uh, science fiction for Bain Books, and I write popular science books also. Uh, latest came out from Princeton Press. And I'm a NASA technologist. I've been involved in leading spaceflight projects for a little over uh, 30 years. You can tell <laughs> by being follically challenged. I've lost a few hairs over that. I uh, love talking to people about space, science, and the future, and I'm an unrepentant optimist. And he does it all with an amazing radio quality voice. At Ken least Roy. according to Kimberly. <laughs> okay, I'm Ken Roy. I'm a retired engineer. I've spent my career working for various subcontractors for DOE here in Oak Ridge, uh, mainly in the field of uh, fire protection and nuclear safety. So I know quite a bit about uh, radiation, uh, which may not be all that interesting. But anyway, I'm, I'm retired now and uh, just kind of living the the good life. And I had hoped for a nice, quiet, uh, stable, dull uh, world. And I have been disappointed. Yeah, we're living in interesting times. Yeah, Maybe yeah. we live in interesting you, times. You know that's the curse, right? 
Mm-hmm. May you live in Kimberly. an interesting time. <laughs> well, um, I write under K.S. Daniels, not Kimberly Costantino, so clear up a little confusion for that. Um, I've been writing science fiction for a very long time. I have my master's in creative writing. Um, during the day, I'm also a writer. I work for um, a company called Sublime Media, and we do corporate training, which I promise is not as boring as it sounds. <laughs> but yeah, we write corporate training um, for all the all the big boys: Amazon, Microsoft, T-Mobile. Get to do some fun stuff, um, but not not nearly as fun as science fiction. Um, I really like hard science fiction, even though I am not um, a scientist by any stretch of the imagination, but I did grow up on Highland, Asimov, and Andre Norton, so I did get a good education in it. David. Uh, um, Dave, I, uh, for adults, my books are published under the name DJ Butler. For the record, I'm perfectly happy being leased. That's okay. I'm, I have no view. I can be leased, last and least. Um, so uh what so i'm a lawyer by original training i've been an acquisition mergers and acquisitions consultant a corporate trainer uh a um an investment banker i'm an editor at bain books uh, uh which is my principal publisher my i guess it's my 17th novel comes out in um july i think soon all right. Well, welcome. All right. To get started, Les and Ken, what is this Ross 248 project all about? How did it come about and what were you trying to achieve with it? Well, if it's okay with Ken, I'll kind of give a, a quick overview and let him jump into some of the details. But, you know, I, you, you may not know, you're, you're, the listeners and viewers who have not read my stuff or heard me talk uh, may not know that I am just an absolute bullish person on the future of space travel. I, I think that we need to be thinking now about how we're going to take our first interstellar journeys hundreds of years in the future, laying the framework ethically, technologically, socially, everything to try to make that happen. And that's been a big focus of my outside of, of my day job activities for several years now with the helping to found the interstellar research group, which Ken's a part of and otherwise. And at our symposia, which we have every other year, this year's uh, in 2023 will be in Montreal. Uh, July 10 through 13. Um, we, we have lots of talks from scientists, engineers, philosophers, sociologists, etc. And most of these conferences have been supported by Bain Books and Tony Weiskopf, the publishers attended quite a few of them. And almost out, out of almost every single meeting, there has been spun off some kind of anthology like this that contains stories of science fiction and science fact. And this one really, like previous ones, spun off from our last meeting, which was in Tucson. And the, the, the whole notion is we talk all about going to the stars and traveling to planets circling distant stars. And that's great. And it's going to be tough. And there's going to be a lot of good things to do and a lot of hard things to achieve. But then the question comes up of what do you do when you get there? Right? And the chances are we're not going to find a star system uh, that has a planet with Earth 2.0 ready-made for us to just hop off a spaceship and go live on, right? Chances are that's not going to happen. The best we can hope for are worlds that might be similar to the terrestrial planets here in our solar system, uh, Venus or Mars or some hybrid between, 
um, that we would then have to look at how we modify that planet uh, to make it accessible to humans. And so this whole future history, and it's a pretty detailed future history timeline that we came up with, is telling the story of what we do at one of those star systems, the star Ross 248, which is a, a red dwarf star. It's a real thing. It's about 10 light years away. And what we would do after we got there, if it had planets and, and, and the trials and tribulations of the people trying to, to live on those worlds and make them more habitable. And then we have some nonfiction essays thrown in about some of the backstory of the science behind the fiction and some of the politics behind the fiction. So maybe Ken want, want to pick it up from there. Yeah, the contract we had with Bain actually called for a hard science fiction uh, near future uh, anthology, shared world anthology, uh, with uh, some focus on terraforming. So, you know, that was kind of the, the core challenge that the lesson I had. So I put together uh, kind of a, a Bible so that we would have a shared world. And one of the things I included was uh, AIs and, you know, how we're going to deal with those. And this was before the era of uh, chat GPT. So it, it was just a, a wild swing. I, I knew they were they were coming in one form or another. So I tried to envision, okay, well, this is what it would look like. And then we had to put together a, essentially a future history. You know, what would the civilization look like that would build starships and why would they go to different stars and why would they go in particular to uh, Ross 248? And, you know, that was also, uh, you know, discussed in the Bible. So then, you know, once we had the Bible and then Les and I went back and forth on, on some of that, uh, we invited uh, writers and, you know, they got the Bible and then they got to propose stories somewhere in it. And uh, the result is the anthology. One thing I found fascinating, actually, about why you chose Ross 248 is that while humans would be moving toward it, it's also moving toward us. So yeah, that, that, that can either one of you say, say a little bit about that? I thought that was fascinating. Oh, yeah. And about 30 or 40,000 years from now, Ross 248 will be the closest star to Earth. There'll Instead of Proxima Earth. Centauri and the Alpha Centauri system. It'll yeah, be, it will be about three be... light years away. And so that kind of factored into the, the plot line. And another good thing about Ross 248 is... Uh, no one knows much about it. Uh, if it has a planetary system, it, it's, it's inclined in such a way that we can't see it. So we're perfectly free to postulate any kind of planetary system we wanted to. And we know about one planetary system around a red dwarf, which is uh, Trappist one So we kind of borrowed part of their solar system and transported it to uh, uh, Ross 248. And, <laughs> so that's why the solar system looks the way it does. Um, you know, there is actually some reason behind it. Yeah, and what we wanted to do is make sure that real science didn't overcome our fiction too soon, right? Because, you know, my nightmare was we published the book and, oh, by the way, the exoplanet detectors just determined they found planets at Ross 248. <laughs> and they're very different from what we had in the book. We don't think that's going to happen. So we, we picked something that we, we hope won't be disproven too soon or too quickly. Well, not, right. not to get too far afield, but isn't that the, the James Webb uh, is, is kind of focused on TRAPPIST-1 and may, there may be some They're, they're looking that... real close at uh, TRAPPIST-1, so we should be getting more details from that. 
But again, we're able to learn a lot about TRAPPIST-1 because of its orientation. It, its planetary system is such that uh, we can see the planets uh, transit the star. But if it were inclined two or three degrees up or down, we would have no idea. And so we assume the same thing is occurring at uh, Ross 248. It has a planetary system, we just can't see it now. Okay, now, now when you put together this anthology, how are the stories arranged? Kind of, is there a particular order, a particular thematic orientation? How did you think about that? Mostly chronologically. Uh, what we did is we had the timeline and the authors could pick what era they wanted to write in because we kind of gave them uh, a, a rough outline of what was happening in terms of the future history. And then we let them play around where they wanted to in the timeline. There were a couple of stories, I don't remember which ones exactly that came in that were kind of generic in terms of where they could take place. And we placed them in the timeline where they thought where we thought they fit well and, and connected that with the authors. Uh, I guess the one big example uh, that kind of that went against that grain is... Uh, uh, this author named K.S. Daniels, uh, her, her story <laughs> is a little bit out of chronological order, but we did that on purpose. And I, she, you'll understand why as she explains and talks a little bit about her story. All right. Well, as Dave Butler so eloquently alluded to at the very beginning of this interview, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. So, David, let's start with you. Bim Carcosa, okay. how did The Yellow King get into a hard science fiction anthology? So these guys are so nice. They're so generous. Like they get these like hard SF anthologies planned, right? Less than Rob Hampson did this with the, the founder effect too. And it's like hard, it's hard science, right? And it's like, we, we, we care that the rocket ships all work the way rocket ships are supposed to work and planetary inclinations are right and ecosystems. And then they're like, Dave, do you want to write this? <laughs> <laughs> and and um, I'm not that guy, actually. Uh, like, I think that's super cool. I super respect it. Um, but I'm the guy that writes, you know, things that, that border on horror or fantasy more than science fiction, right? So, um, but I've been, I've been wanting to write a tie-in to the, the King in Yellow um, mythos for some time. Right. And if you're not familiar with this, it goes back. I think the earliest stories are written by Ambrose Bierce or the earliest references to it are written uh, by Ambrose Bierce. And there's this whole mythology and these uh, multiple writers, including H.P. Lovecraft later, have, have alluded to sort of this mysterious figure of Hastur. And it's this kind of elusive uh, madness at the fringes kind of horror motif um and, and this is Amberus Bierce the journalist in San Francisco who disappeared in Mexico uh, yeah I, potentially yeah. for Pancho Villa yeah yeah okay same, just wanted I, to establish that's the same guy yeah so uh so uh you know one of the recurring motifs in that um in that mythology is that this world uh uh, which is described as being dim. It's always described as being dim, dim Carcosa. It's never clear why Carcosa is dim. Dim Carcosa with its towers behind the moon and the windless lakes and mysterious disturbing things that happen there. 
And, uh, and, and so I said, you know what, uh, and by the way, if this is all sound like, I don't like, I don't know this at all. Dave. So true detective season one, maybe the highest profile example of this is the season with Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson, right. As the two detectives. And, uh, so go watch that. Like the mythology they're playing with there, that again is, is, uh, that's Hastur, the king in yellow. Uh, it's the the Carcosa uh, the mythology. So um, I said, "Hey, there's a there's a there's a red dwarf." Um, I said, "If any planets, if it's ever going to be a dim world, right? It's th- this is a pretty good explanation uh, for it." Uh, and then I said, "Okay, uh, I might have a hard science hat on. Doesn't really fit. I'm going to try." Uh, <laughs> How do we go from dim world to like mysterious occult happenings? And so I did a little bit of reading about light deprivation. And it turns out that as a species, this is one of the things that maybe is less obvious to us, but we need light. Uh, uh, we, we get psychologically pretty messed up uh, without it. And so it's, uh, it is a, yeah, so I wrote basically a piece of kind of noir PI fiction set uh set uh a little further down the line in this in this uh uh terraforming sequence uh when the lights at one of the community are starting to go out and uh and and there's some 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 uh, loss of sanity uh ensues also it's important to note that there's that ai theme in there that lying AI theme. Tell, say a little bit more about that. Yeah. Uh, at a certain point, uh, so so the main character is Prashant Satyadeva. He's a former security guy, and it's his kind of mustering out benefit. He got to keep his uh, a, ver- a version of his security guy uh, implants, including a like a friendly AI. Um, but at a certain point, he starts to worry that he can't trust the AI. And so he has to sort of close the case while hiding what he's doing, some of his actions from an entity that can see through his own eyes. And Try what's that your... sometime. That <laughs> 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 would be hard. <laughs> yeah, apparently the AIs are better at that than the humans kind of get confused and befuddled. I think Kimberly's story may have touched upon that. Uh, so let's let's go to let's go to Kimberly. Uh, tell us a little bit about your story. Yeah, so mine is sort of the prequel. Why why we are doing what we are doing in this anthology, um, and I and I picked this sort of place in the anthology because I absolutely love robots. Again, absolutely thank Asimov for that. Um, anytime there is an opportunity to write about robots, I'm going to take it. So when when I read the the Bible, and I saw what was going on with Pluto, I was like, oh, this is perfect. I need to tell this story. Robots working in virtual reality, that's such a perfect combination. Um, so essentially, you've got these, these two brothers, um, for lack of a better word, they're family, they're brothers, um, and they are, are descendants for from a, an, an AI that is very good at her job, and they are also very good at their job. Um, but essentially, they are asked by very, you know, wealthy people, um, for the most part, to make these fantasies. Humans can just get lost, and, you know, they're outlawed for some people, but it's okay if you're rich. That's cool. Um, 
they accidentally get this request where a guy's like, you know, I know I'm about to die soon. I want to know what happens, what happens to us. Let's just extrapolate out as far as you can. And so what they realized when they did this is, oh, we're not going to, humans aren't going to be around as, as long as we thought, you know, so we've, we've got to find a way to steer this course and just, they can't do it. It's not going to happen. There's too many variables. Humans are just going to screw everything up where they're at. They're so far in the trench at this point. Um, so they essentially decide, okay, we just got to move the whole playing field. We've got to, these guys have to go somewhere else. And when they're in a different area, we can control, we can make sure that they're going to survive and thrive because that's essentially their purpose. That's what Sane's objective is, is to make sure humanity keeps on doing what it's supposed to do, survive. Um, but they also quickly realized that well, humans aren't necessarily going to buy into this historically. If you tell them there's going to be a problem in a thousand years, 500 years, 100 years, they're going to be like, eh, not my problem. Um, so they have to kind of finagle some things. And also, of course, it's a massive resource ask. So there's some lying involved, you know, with the presentation. And they, they come up with a three-pronged plan. Um, we'll do what we can. In Seoul, you know, if that works, great. If we can steer them, wonderful. If we can't, we've got Ross 248 where we can control the things, at least for a while anyway, obviously. They're a little bit um, optimistic, I would say, in, in the, the amount that they control. And then their fail-safe, no matter what, is Pluto. They're going to fortify Pluto. And if nothing else, Pluto and the humans that are there are going to be safe. So we've got this three, three different attacks. One of them is bound to work. They present all their information, and then we we end up in Ross two four eight. The interesting thing you said is that this was motivated by or inspired by Asimov, particularly regarding robots. But it was also very clearly motivated by Asimov's, inspired by his concept of psychohistory, right? Yeah. In terms of <laughs> predicting future society and and things like that, and having. David's orientation, I thought about, well, what if you had AI do the exact same thing, only it was dark, <laughs> they, they had their own, they had their own purposes, but you, I think, went the positive route, which I think is the, in an anthology like this is extremely important. In terms of the, the other motif I thought was interesting was that in every simulation they ran, the, the rich would find a way to consume all the resources first. Uh, say a little bit more about that. Like, what was motivating that? And and I thought it was I thought it was actually pretty humorous and true. But say more. So essentially, it was. I think part of their problem, and this goes back to why they actually had to go talk to someone else. They had to go talk to you know a humanoid. Is they were also looking at this the wrong way. They were trying to extrapolate data, and they weren't. They weren't really taking in consideration some of the, the worst parts of human nature, I would say. And not that, not that humans are like the worst, but they become a different anomaly when you're talking about humanity as a whole, right? Like individuals do certain things. And this goes sort of to the psychohistory point. As individuals, you can't really predict. And on, on a grand scale, individuals don't matter. But if you take it all and it's its own little thing, then you can predict a little bit better. And what they were seeing is, is there's just too many big groups that are going to eat up these resources. And no matter what, we end up in this really terrible place because they don't have the foresight as well to sort of 
see, okay, where are we going? And that's also a human nature thing. You know, we, I think intrinsically, it's hard for, I think, a lot of people to think about what's going to be here in a thousand years. It's, it's too much to consider. And realistically, we shouldn't to some extent, right? We're only here for a certain amount of time. It can be very overwhelming to worry about all the problems all the time for infinity, right? So, you know, to some extent, it makes sense that a lot of humanity can't do that or doesn't isn't built that way. But that's the good thing about the AI is they are built that way. They can do this. So, in in a lot of ways, what this story does is it it shows. We talked about this earlier with with the the AI and things like that before. I think we started recording. Actually, um, there's always a place for both, and that was kind of what I wanted to do with the story. It's like the AIs can do a lot of really good stuff but they have their limits and the humans can do a lot of really good stuff, but they also have their limits. So they have this kind of symbiotic relationship where they really do need each other. And I think that's a way to sort of get around the idea of sort of the, the robot overlord stories, right? Um, if, the, if there's a symbiotic relationship, if they need each other and work together and it's fulfilling for both of them, that's sort of, that's the dream, that's the goal. Um, so that's one of the things I was hoping to sort of showcase a little bit. If, in this story um, and to also bring out a bit of the humanity with the AS. I did try to very purposely make them sort of funny um, playing with the relationship between Nobru and Yato and having that sort of big brother, little brother, sibling-ish rivalry, which doesn't seem very AI, that seems very human, um, but you still have that dynamic there. So I did try to play with that as well. Well, one of the things Ken and I tried to do in the anthology with regard to this whole notion of AI, and again, this predated the whole chat GPT thing, is we, we have that optimistic view of AI, because typically we go down the Elon Musk, you know, this is the beginning of the end of the human species kind of path when we, when we start talking about AIs, and I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I think that's certainly a risk, but I think if, there, if we're wise and uh, planned with forethought, ha, huh, how often do we do that, right? Uh, then we might be able to avert things like that and come up with this symbiotic relationship where what's good for us is good for them and what's good for them is good for us, right? And and if we can find a way to, to put AI into that position, then it's not necessarily the robot overlord, okay, that that either destroys us or, or you know, enslaves us. And, I, and again, that's that optimist than Ken and me, we both look at things like this and say, okay, th this is possible. You know, this, this is the kind of future we want. What does that mean in terms of a storyline and how to get people thinking about getting there, right? And to your point, Les, and also uh, to what Kimberly said a little bit earlier about in her conception of the future, AI needed us and we needed AI. And one thing that she said in particular, or the story conveyed in particular, is that humanity kind of conveyed purpose to AI. Whereas AI that weren't, I think in your society, Kimberly, they're raised by, the AIs that are most successful are raised by humans. The ones that go right. mad, again, a nod to Dave Butler's the, yellow, the play for the Yellow King. Um, the AIs that go mad are not raised by humans. And folks in the story believe it's because they don't have any purpose. Can you say a little bit more about that? Dave or me? Sorry. Uh, Kim, you. Or both. Yeah. <laughs> Whoever. Kim, yeah. Okay. Sorry. Ken or Kim? 
Kim. I have this absolute Kimberly. Fear Kimberly. <laughs> <laughs> I no, I can say something. People. All right. Well, I I butchered your name. I should have said Kimberly. That's my fault. So. No, no, Kimberly. no. You're you're totally fine. Um, and yeah, that's that's actually a point that I'd forgotten. Um, that we we did have them, you know, being raised by you know one of the humanoids, and that sort of grounds them with purpose. And then there's also the idea, and there's a if I'm not mistaken, I think I sometimes I forget what I edited out and what I left in. Um, near the end, like Yato is sort of experiences this like existential crisis like he's got a purpose but he's it changed and he's not really aligned with it and his brother sort of warns him like eh, you sound like you're you're lacking purpose there you know do I need to we need to talk to somebody essentially because it's not only about how they're raised it's also if they lose that purpose later on and in a way that's also very human um you know thinking about like depression and things like that when you don't have a sense of purpose or you lose your sense of self humans you know sort of go down the same path so it's a way that we're seeing that robots they need this and it works for different reasons and they have different motivations um but they essentially they've got to have a reason to live or what's the point and that's sort of the similar point between humans and ai's here is that's what everybody needs now last one, point one about point, this oh, go ahead ken sorry yeah one point worth mentioning is what we made a distinction at least in the bible uh, was we have sentient AIs, you know, who are are self-aware and they're they're people, they're they're characters. But we also have uh, what we call computers, basically computers, which are are just machines that you know they'll run an algorithm, and you know, like Chat uh, GPT is 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 an algorithm. It's a very fancy al algorithm, and it you know talking to it, you can get the sense that you're talking to, to someone, but really you're just talking to uh, a computer program. So the, the sentient AIs are actually sentient, you know, they're, they're characters and they have abilities that are different than humans, but they're not that different from humans. Otherwise they would make good characters. I also appreciated how their network, the, the acronym for it was, don't worry, we're saying... <laughs> We're saying S A I N. Actually, can you think, Ken? I want to come back to you, Kimberly. I promise. But Ken, can you explain or less? Uh, I mean, that seems a little bit tongue in cheek and a little too old. Like if I if there was a sentient AI that was on an encrypted network that nobody could read except the AI. At least that's in the history uh, section in the back. And could they call themselves sane? I would. <laughs> I would be like, don't look here. Don't worry. Everything's all fine. It's completely fine. It's completely, don't worry about it. We're sane. So say a little bit more about the choice of that uh, acronym. Well, uh, go ahead, Ken. You came up with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You okay, go ahead. okay. Um, yeah, again, in the, uh, the history, um, future history, we assume that uh, sentient AIs were developed, but no one really knew quite legally how to handle them so they were considered property and in order to protect each other you know because again they, they are sentient beings uh, they created uh, a sentient artificial intelligence network that allowed them to communicate with other uh, ais sentient ais and uh, coordinate and protect each other you know kind of like the uh, the civil rights movement you know only you know, th only through the internet. So that they're able to uh, communicate, they're able to uh, protect each other. 
and they are able to look out for each other. If if one loses a sense of purpose, then they just sort of sit down and eventually just go offline. So, you know, a brother AI could say, hey, what's going on and uh, help them find a sense of purpose because they have to have a sense of purpose. So Kimberly, are you familiar with Roko's Basilisk? It sounds a little familiar, but no, not really. So it's a concept of this rogue AI from the far future, maybe not rogue, but uh, AI from the far future that in order to stimulate its existence, it has to influence the past and get humans to slowly enact its will. And again, this story with this psychohistory element, just, I mean, it's just dawned on me right now. It's a bit like, it's a bit like a benevolent Rocco's Basilisk. If that's the case, Ken, I see you smiling. So I know you want to, I know you want to jump in on this one. What do you think of that concept? Yeah, we, we could have explored this a, a lot more. Uh, but again, you're, you're limited with how many, you know, how much you can say in the, the various stories. Um, yeah, we, we it, 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 they're an entity, but they're not human, but they're part of humanity. And, and, and that's what we were really trying to, uh, to get at. Um, and Plus, I, it's I just, a lot. It's a lot more. It's a lot easier and nicer to think about the future where these machines are partners, not enemies, right? right. We, we've yeah. had enough enemies, and and I think we, we didn't want to set this storyline up to be, you know, the humans versus AI, right? Humans versus robots. And and in the in this future history, Ken and I have tried to take into account technology advancements beyond just what we kind of know about in space travel, which a lot of hard science fiction tends to do. But you know, as we travel 100 years, 200 years in the future, genetic engineering is going to advance, bioengineering, artificial intelligence, computers. So we tried to come up with a future that was plausible, where all of these things happen, right? Where we're doing biological modification of the human being itself, at the same time that we're terraforming the planet at the same time that we're collaborating with AI. So, and, and I'm sure we missed all kinds of things that are probably going to happen. But as I've gotten older and I read some science fiction, even stuff that's being written today that postulates the future, they tend to extrapolate some technology or some innovation into the future and ignore everything else, right? But I think the future is going to be stranger than we can imagine because of all of these things. And this, this AI element is just one element that we tried to, tried to play on for that. That actually sets up the next story very nicely, Les and, and Ken. So in Kimberly's story, the AI lied, but for the most part, it ended up having a very positive resolution. Unless, of course, you were that wealthy family living on Mercury. And that's kind of where the, where the problem starts, or you know, at some point in the story, with uh, Ken and, and Les's story. So Ken or less, you want to take it away and tell us a little bit about the setup for that. Les, you want to? Well, I'll start because uh, I, I started writing. Ken, Ken and I collaborated on this story and we talked about a general outline and I started writing and then he wrote and we edited each other, which is the way I like to collaborate. And what, what got me going on the story is I was thinking about this whole timeline is what is an AI which could be potentially as close to immortal as we can imagine compared to the human lifetime what's going to happen when they've been around when one of those has been around a long time 
do they get bored? Years, yeah. yeah, hundreds of years, half a half yeah. a millennium, right? Do they do they get bored with life? I mean, what what happens? Um, and and I'm I have to admit, I kind of channeled. Uh, I don't want to get all emotional here, but when my uh, paternal grandmother was in her late 80s, she basically was ready to die. And it wasn't because she had any specific physical ailment that was killing her. I think she was just tired of life and was ready for it to end. And, and I, I think that is not an uncommon part of some human experience, those who live that long, right? And so that was what I wanted to translate into a storyline where you have a being that is as close to immortal as we can imagine. Do they get tired of living? And are they bored? And so we took one of the main characters from the entire story arc. And at the end of the book, we're putting that character, the AI, in a position of questioning its own existence and whether it was worth going on. And then, of course, because we're, I'm an optimist, we give it a reason to go on, okay? So that purpose for life, right? And so that, that's kind of where it, that's the overarching theme I wanted to write about. And then the other played into it because in the Bible uh, that Ken largely created, um, you know, with every good plan, there are people who don't like the plan. Okay. And so Ken, if you want to explain that a little bit and, and who the, who the, the foils are uh, in this, in these storylines. Well, one aspect of the Bible we haven't really talked about is the, uh, the space patrol. And a book I had read before this thing uh, began to develop was uh, David Dudney's uh, Dark Skies. And, and you know, he, he's an academic, and, and his whole thesis is that humanity going into space is a terrible thing. It will unleash monsters that will destroy humanity. And so the Bible was really constructed to kind of deal with each one of his monsters and, and, and present a solution. Um, and so we have the Space Patrol, uh, which is uh, an independent military-type organization that surprisingly bears a lot of resemblance to uh, Heinlein's Space Patrol. And, and Ken, uh, to be clear, when you say the Bible, you're talking about the Bible for the Rebels. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We're not trying to be irreverent with Christian faith or anything like no, that. Like, what is this, retro-causality? <laughs> like, are we like, going the back Ross to... Two no. four eight <laughs> Bible is, is what I'm, I'm talking about here. Yeah, and yeah, we tried to deal with the uh, the monsters that, that he was worried about, AIs being one, and so we dealt with them as uh, instead of being an enemy, they became a a child of humanity, and their goal is to deal with these these monsters. And once they found out that there's a family on Mercury that's experimenting with uh, genetic engineering and genetic improvement, and they kind of look down on ordinary humans and, and they don't like AIs to begin with, uh, you know, and that's pointed out to the patrol by the character that, uh, that Kimberly, you know, had in her story and that we had in ours, uh, Five of Chandra, of, of all things. And so the patrol took care of them. You know, they essentially nuked uh, the clan, which is one way to deal with monsters. But there were two brothers that were on Earth studying from the clan, and they were kind of unhappy about what had happened to their, their family. But they are genetically enhanced, so they also have a long lifespan and other, other talents, you know, high, high intelligence and, and the ability to be very angry and, and hold a grudge. 
And so they turned out to be the uh, the villains in, in our story. And uh, they also fed into a lot of bad events in other stories uh, along the line. Uh, the anti-colony so anti people, the people that didn't yeah, want this yeah. whole endeavor to happen because it was going to be yeah. a bad thing. Well, and also that they were just mad about their family being wiped out, and, and they, they had a grudge that they were trying to, uh, uh, to satisfy. And so they turned out to be the, uh, the villains, you know, perfectly rational reasons for what they were doing, uh, and they were dealt with. Well, they also not only used genetic engineering to enhance themselves, but they also did something far darker. Right. And again, that's, you know, genetic engineering can be a wonderful thing or it, it can unleash a lot of monsters too. And so what he was doing was creating uh, essentially a bunch of servants or slaves that would help him in his, uh, his program. And genetic engineering has that potential. Uh, you know, what happens when uh, our betters are truly better than us, you know, when they're smarter and stronger and longer lived and more endurance, and they're worthy of, of being our leaders, and we're only worthy of being their their servants. Uh, that's a future I'm not real happy about. But how do you deal with it? So, you know, that that question was touched on, and I'm not sure we have a good answer. But uh, you know, it's kind of interesting that in order to deal with these monsters that David Dudney uh, uh, pointed out, you know, not a book I would recommend, but still interesting. Uh, Heinlein Space Patrol falls out of it. And, uh, you know, they're, they're a character in a lot of these stories, too. So I, I found that interesting. I, I would like to put in there that we have a great nonfiction fiction piece uh, by a fellow named Brent Ziarnik, who recently retired from the Air Force. Uh, and I'm not sure if he actually was in Space Force before he retired or was still Air Force, but yes, he, he would have been. He would be Space Force because he was instrumental in helping uh, the, the transition to Space Force. And he wrote a great. Like I say, it's kind of a not, it's kind of a fictionalized future history of our space force, right? That leads to the space patrol that's in the book, and he's one who ought to know because he taught at Maxwell Air Force Base at the officer school down there uh, for Air Force officers and now Space Force officers about space. I mean, he was an instructor of space to future, you know, uh, controllers who are going to be uh, military folks in Space Force doing that, and he was also instrumental in getting us uh, General Quast who was a big advocate of Space Force, uh, Lieutenant General uh, Quas to write the foreword for the book. And so we, we tried to tie it into, you know, real world kinds of things happening today uh, so that you'd have that connection with, you know, the future and kind of a, a, a thought experiment about how things might change with Space Force over time. Now, the anthology certainly focuses on issues with or challenges with AI and genetic engineering in the far future. But it's here today, particularly even in the industry that we're talking about with, you know, in writing and, and publishing. What, I mean, I, I don't want to get too deep into it, but how do we reconcile that? What's creativity? What's not? What's, you know, is, is something entirely written by AI? Is it ever going to be capable of writing something better than the best humans because i think now it it's probably not quite there but it's probably it will probably get there pretty soon that it's better than the average human so what do you all think i'll start with uh i'll start with less 
Oh. <laughs> well, I I'm going to end with Dave because Dave, yeah, you need I'm, to have Dave. He's he's going to be. Give well, us let, the... Let's keep let's keep it focused. <laughs> is is AI ever going to be better than the best human writer? And if so, what society? How society going to handle that? Two questions. I, I can't I can't tell you if it's ever going to be better, but I can tell you that I have read enough books about writing, in particular books on screenplays. One there's out there called Save the Cat, and I read the book about how to write a formula screenplay. And I see so many movies now that follow that formula, and I'm being I'm, played. I'm the king of coincidences. Liz. Okay, there so. it is. There it is that save the cat moment and all these other things that they think have to be in the storyline and how many guardians of the galaxy movies do we need? How many Spider-Man movies do we need? And so if you want to talk about successful writers, I think you're going to get AI turning out thriller after thriller, after thriller, mystery, after mystery, after mystery, romance, novel, after romance, novel, after romance, novel. And they're going to be like those movies with infinite numbers of sequels, which aren't necessarily very creative, that can be very entertaining and touch on all the touch points that humans need to be entertained. Right. So, yes, I think you'll be able to get great books like that. Will you get the revolutionary thought provoking change that came with Dune? Will you get uh, a, a, another innovative uh, uh hobbit or you know uh, will you get that i am very skeptical so if you want to talk about uh, a successful good writer who turns things on its head and is not formulaic i don't think we'll reach that point with ai anytime soon that's less opinion all right i'll let you off the hook for the second question because i think you said you didn't know how it might pan out i don't know ken yeah, I just wanted to emphasize the point that this anthology was written entirely by humans. And it may be, it may be one of the last anthologies uh, that can make that claim. Uh, there are videos out there on uh, YouTube on how to use Chad GPT to, to write short stories and write novels. And, um, you know, there are people out there doing it. I, I think the slush pile is going to be getting a lot bigger than it ever has been before, which may not be a good thing. But again, the question, you know, can they write as good or better than humans? I have no idea. We'll see. Kimberly. I've, I taught college English for a while. So I think, yeah, it's already better than the average human for sure. Um, I think there's, I think there's a lot of potential and a lot of cool uses for things like this, but will it ever be better? I think maybe I'm kind of with less here. I think having those big ideas, I think is gonna, I, I hope anyway, remain sort of the realm of humanity, but I think there's gonna be some smaller tells as well. I feel like there are just certain aspects of a story that really give it away. And I would say, I think dialogue is one of the places like you can write decent dialogue. I think an AI can write probably decent AI, you know, AI dialogue and it'll probably keep getting better. But there's some things that are just so human, so quirky that I don't think that it'll quite ever get to that point because some people are just amazing at dialogue. Um, and I think that's what humanizes a story is being able to have that really good dialogue. And I think it's going to be, hard press for an AI to get to that level with, with some of just the turns of phrases, the back and forth, the banter. I, th I think that's going to be hard. So I think 
little things like that, but also the big ideas. I, I, I feel pretty secure that the humans are, are going to come out on top on that, at least for a very long time. It's, again, who knows how things are going to be in the more distant future. Dave. So this is a this is a distinctly non-hypothetical question, right? Like this is happening now. So we've already had at least one pretty prominent science fiction, short fiction publication, uh, Clark's World, shut its doors to uh, to open submissions, right? B because they the editor wrote in February, out of nowhere, this flood of AI written stories started in January, and then it doubled in February, and by March he just said no more, right? <laughs> Can't handle it. So. That's already happened. There is a series of books online right now. These are not fiction, and I'm not remembering the artist, the, the artist, the author's name. You can Google it and find the name. There's a guy who used AI to write a, a series of like 18 or 20 computer programming manuals. So they're like, you know, how to program in C++ or whatever. And they're written with AI, right? Um, and I don't think they're advertised that way. I don't think, I, I don't think he says written with AI, like, but they are. Um, I was at a, at a writer's conference in February and I was on a panel about this and there were about 10 writers and, 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 you know, the question was kind of, well, where is this going? And I was stunned to find that I was the only person who was not enthusiastically embracing, uh, the, the rise of AI assisted fiction or entirely AI written fiction and, and literally what these guys said now, now some of them were indie kind of high volume indie publishers and they would say things like hey i will generate much faster novels which i understand but the logic right like where hey if that's true right if everyone just generates much more a much larger output of novels our problem that we have a, an increasing number of things to read in the world today just gets much worse right uh fewer and fewer gatekeepers more and more books oh hooray and why do you think you're the one who's going to capture a livable wage out of that you know it's going to be somebody who gets really good with ai and that person is going to you know become the new publisher of choice i find this a nightmare scenario but like the more the more basic problem right and this is what the thing i said this is what the thing i said uh on the panel literature is is not uh is not cheese it's the field notes of the human species, right? And, and the only way we know how to produce that is processed through a human soul. And, and what comes out of it is sometimes trashy, right? And, and sometimes it's bland, and sometimes it's sublime. And it's not just that I think, I, I agree, I agree with Les's point, right? I don't think it's going to generate a homer. I just don't think so. I do think we're, we're going to find that one solution for the WGA is for Hollywood just to replace all of the Marvel, uh, the MCU writers with AIs. <laughs> Actually, perhaps they already have. That would explain the last two or three that I've seen, right? They're all the same. But but the problem is, like, even those trashy novels, like, like take your pick. On the panel, Harlequin was the example that they used. And I said, I, I, said, I feel like I have to stand in... in speak a word on behalf of harlequin romance right e even like a formulaically written novel it's a straight up western it's a straight up it's another jack reacher novel it still came through a human 
right? And and I think I think replacing that with entirely synthetic fiction is kind of like deciding we're just going to eat purely synthetic food. Like it is a huge experiment. And and with food, we at least have the the ability to say, oh, I can tell I, it's giving me rickets, right? Like there are some there's things I can measure pretty easily. When we're dealing with the the human spirit, it's a lot trickier. I think I think it's a I think it's a terrible experiment, and we shouldn't do it. And I also think there there's no stopping people from doing it. I think you're right. It's gonna happen. Okay. Go ahead, Ken. Oh. Uh, I'm, I have another scenario that may uh, maybe kind oh, of. Oh, I have you. a solution, but I'll, I'll uh, you go first. Okay. Suppose uh, AIs can actually write, you know, really decent fiction. Then, rather than you know, editors being deluged with uh, books from AIs, I think there will be sites where you go and you explain to the site who you are, what you like. And then that site will send you books specifically written for you. Uh, you know, you can even be the, the character. Uh, you know, I, I don't like dystopia, so I, I wouldn't get a dystopian uh, book. But the books would be written specifically for me by the AI. And that goes for everyone. There won't be a common book. Uh, that everyone reads. Everyone will be reading their own literature. And but see, that's just that's as dystopian. Scary. That's going to yes. drive us apart even more than we're apart. Correct. Right because now. one of the things that holds us together are, are the stories that we read, the movies that we, we go to. And the right. shared uh, the experiences, we, right? right? Yeah. Right. And the when canon. we've lost that, we will have lost a lot. And I just throw that out there as one possibility that's kind of kind of scary. And, and I think people will celebrate it. And I, and it's easy to see why, right? Like I have a hard time finding books I like. I'm a big reader and this book every week sends me a book and it's written for me. And if I want, I can have my kid be the hero in it and whatever, right? But then I'm- but then yeah, You can talk to the side and, and, and customize it further, yeah. But Dave, I wanna send you a book that's gonna put you out of your comfort zone and you're gonna finish the book and you're gonna say, wow, I never thought that I'd read this. And that, that made me think. And that won't happen in the scenario you're talking about. It just won't. Right. How many people ask for that? People like the comfort zone, I feel like. Again, it's sort of base programming, I think, to some extent. We like comfort. It's safety. So if you're going to customize something 100% for me, that sounds like the safest option in the world. But that's also not sure. how you grow, right? Sure. I want to I want to dial the profanity meter down to zero. And I want to I want to pick the ethnic mix of the people. I want no violence, or I want ultra violence, right? Exact. But mm -hmm. right, you're right. just putting everyone in a in a box. It's one step away from being plugged into, you know, physically into your own personal matrix. This is kind of the VR that we sort of have in Ross two four eight a little bit, and why there was you know some issues with it because people were going in these holes in their own little world and not coming out and super violent or super this or super that. And so there were parameters put around VR in our you know, imagined world. I mean, that's maybe where we're heading is what we imagine with literature, with movies, with eventually VR. Well, Kimberly, you've just painted my uh, most pessimistic solution to the Fermi paradox. 
And that mm -hmm. is that we all plug into our own individualized AI and we don't care about the future. We don't care about anything other than the pleasure of being in an AI simulation that for us lasts close to eternity. Wow, how depressing. It's, <laughs> it's called the great so, filter by filter bubble. That, that's a wonderful mm. short story right there, Les, that you should write. As our astronauts get to, you know, uh, Proxima Centauri, whatever, and there is a huge, highly technical civilization where everybody is just plugged into their customized fictional world. I think well, if there are aliens out there, I think we'll find some of them who've done that. All right, here's here's the solution. Yeah. What's, what's going to happen is there's going to be three markets. And the publishing industry is the only entity that can really do this. If they don't do it, you're going to get Kimberly's you know, fil great filter by filter bubble scenario. Now the three segments are pure human, hybrid, and then just pure AI dross, okay? What the publishing industry needs to do, and by the way, these ideas are free, publishing industry, anybody's listening. Uh, you have to have a certification organization or some trade organization that certifies that something is pure human created. And what you do is any good business person knows there's two ways to have an effective strategy. You have something that is high quality and you can charge a premium for it. And then you just have kind of the low cost provider, which is a race to the bottom. You need to segment those two things immediately. The second thing is, and this is where the opportunity to make money comes from. Let's say less that I am a, an avid Les Johnson reader. And I, I want more of you. <laughs> well, Les, you can't write fast enough. I've read every book that you've had and, and I need, I need more. So there should be a process by which writers like you can leverage AI written content written in your voice that you get a royalty from. And this is where fortunes are made. Right. But until we come up with something that, uh, <laughs> And, and by the way, that's that's transparency. It has to be transparent, right? Just to be clear, anyway. you accept the dystopia, but you just want to make money on it. <laughs> that's what you're saying. I accept that there will be a rating system. Something is, you know, so if people want to pay for dross, they're just there's going to be a race to the bottom. But that's the only way you can save pure human writers by putting that certification on their on their books, so that people who don't want to read now the the crazy part is when you get into the hybrid area, because I think there may be some people who aren't good writers on their own, but can take those magnificent ideas that only a human would have and execute using an AI. And then it's kind of back and forth is, and that's where the gray area truly is. But again, the certification process, if you open up that AI in your browser and type one passage or take one passage from it, it is not pure human. So wow, that's going to be, be tough, though, because you know, you, you right now you have Grammarly, right, which runs and helps you correct grammar and things like that, and your editor feature in Microsoft Word, which goes through and gives you wording suggestions and concise suggestions. Where where does the AI assistant leave off from? You know, just a good grammar and spell checker. Um, I could well, I, I like your idea, but you know that gray area one's going to be hard to define. And part of it is also generating a list of authors who sign some sort of a certification where they, you know, again, you have to clearly define these things. Yes, you can use Grammarly. Yes, you can use Microsoft Word, but anything of a generative AI kind of definitional basis, whatever that is, you can't, 
you can't use. And then you have to, so authors who are already established, I think have the potential to do fantastically well. People who are not established, it's going to get, it's going to get worse and it's going to get worse very quickly if the publishing industry doesn't at least move in the direction that I talked about. Well, that is what has happened with short stories, right? I mean, if, if you cannot take submissions from the whole world, if you can't just be open to submission, the Clark's world solution is, well, we just can't take, like, we'll just have to get stories from people that we know, right? Because because I know this guy, I've already published three short stories by him. So when he sends me a short story, fine. And so people who are trying to get their foot in the door, you're out of luck. Because, right, I tried for two months to cope with the flood. And I'm spending my whole day copying, pasting these dumb stories into zero GPT and more and more and more of them were AI. And I just done. That can't be my now- luck. Now, to be fair, the AI issue in terms of deciphering what's AI generated and what's not is not altogether new. And by not altogether new, editors in the past have had to deal with things like plagiarism, things like that, right? Where you still have to check the stories and you have to make sure that you don't you don't see any of that. So it's not it's novel in some ways, but it's kind of back back to the future in others. So anyway, go ahead, go ahead, Dave. I was just curious if if the rest of you have seen this. There's a website called Zero GPT where you can paste text into a a little entry bar and it will purport to analyze not only what percentage, it it gives you a percentile rating from 0% AI, meaning I think this is all human generated to 100. And then it will also go through and say, here are the pieces that I, that I, think are most like most likely to have been generated by an ai i don't know have you guys looked at this at all have you seen this i've heard of it I've, but i'm I've not heard used about to it, it. I, heard about I, it. I, yeah so my unscientific analysis from having run a few few pieces through first of all i was very pleased that the first thing i ran through came up as zero percent of my own writing zero percent ai this is most likely written by a human i, I felt pretty pleased but but then my next thing was like 4% or something. So, uh, and what it does, it highlights these bits. What they seem to be is sort of bad writing. Like it seems like what it does is, it, is if it finds just too many examples that are too like your sentence out there in whatever data set it's looking at, it concludes this could have been or is likely to have been, right? Which that's not really, I mean, you could just be a hackneyed stereotype writer. Right, and you're still a human, so I don't know if we. I I guess I'm saying I don't know how these technologies actually work to detect AI writing. It's not clear to me we actually can do it. Well, Dave, I'm I'm glad you showed up as zero percent AI because from my experience of looking myself up on ChatGPT, if I entered my writing into the same tool, it would probably say a hundred percent communist. So anyway, just to throw that out. <laughs> Give it a shot. ZeroGPT.com. Zero spelled out. ZeroGPT.com. Take a look. It's just, you copy and paste, it's free. It'll do up to 5,000 words in a byte. I don't know that it works. All right. Well, before, before, the last, before the last question, by the way, Kimberly, did you look yourself up in ChatGPT? I'm going to do that. That's my homework. But I did just do the the zero GPT one. I threw in a paragraph from my story. I got zero percent. So boom. I guess I'm so, not a robot. 
free range human there. But you know, the other possibility is that it has the book in its database. It found it and realized this was written before chat GPT and therefore came back zero chance. Just saying. Could, could, could be. Could have cheated. Could be. Although not my story because this one's not published yet. It was a thing ah, I was just sending okay. out to an editor. Um, but I assume it was just so weird that it said uh, an AI would not generate this. But I guess the experiment right. would be use chat GPT to generate some text and then put it in zero GPT and, and see what it says. I've not done that experiment. I should. All right. So before the last question, the audience has three homework assignments. Uh -oh. The first is to go to chat GPT, look up yourself and be amazed by how inaccurate it is. Well, Number you, two, you, you go say, to zero GPT. Wait, what, what, how do you look yourself? You like you say, tell me about Dave Butler or something. Yeah. Or who was the author, Sean Patrick Hazlett or something like oh, okay. that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's assignment number one. Assignment number two is use ChatGPT to generate a random prompt and then go to zero ChatGPT and see if it actually works. And assignment number three is buy the Ross 248 project. Okay, that's the most important. And that's assignment important number four is write a review. And put that's it on, right. the, put on, it on Amazon. Amazon. <laughs> and Barnes and Noble. Yeah, not writing, just like keep it. That's weird. Put it on. <laughs> just have Z just have ChatGPT write your review. <laughs> yeah, actually, that that would be a good use of, please, of ChatGPT. Just write a review for Ro the Ross Two Forty Eight project. That is everybody's assignment. We need there to go. the Main Street team and all of our contributing authors. <laughs> okay, last question, Les and and Ken. Why should people pick this book up? Like, what sorts of reasons should they go and grab it? Well, first and foremost, I think you're going to be entertained with some big thoughts. Uh, we, we really wanted to write uh, a collection or edit a collection that was the, the wow, the big idea, uh, the, the whole notion of entertainment through big ideas. And what I found as editor of this is we have some of those big ideas and then you have some big ideas that come in small places that you didn't expect to get big ideas. Uh, and and uh, the, the stories are widely varied. I think the reader will be entertained and will come away thinking, wow, I hadn't thought about that. And I would suggest people read the book because it's a very positive uh, book. It's a positive future. And there's so much of the other stuff out there that's just depressing. So hopefully this will be an optimistic book. It's got good ideas, big ideas, and things that you can go, hmm, I need to think about that. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of book that I, I look for. And, and that's the kind of book that we tried to produce here. And uh, I'm pretty happy with the result. And then when does the, where can folks find the book? When does it come out? The book is out now, and you, uh, you can find you you can get it online through the Bain website where they have a list of vendors. All you have to do is uh, read the go to Bain.com, search for either my name or Ken's name. Some books will pop up. You can read about the book and buy now through your favorite vendor. It's also uh, in bookstores like Barnes and Noble. You can get it online at Amazon, BNN online. It's uh, 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 Kindle, ebook, and hard copy. Not hard copy, paper copy, trade paperback. All right. Thank you, everyone. And for the audience, definitely check it out. You can see it kind of over my shoulder here. So pick it up as soon as you can. Thanks again, everyone. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye.
And now we bring you our audiobook serialization of Tinker by Wynne Spencer. Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the Elven Court, the NSA, the Elven Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss. Audible Studios presents... Tinker, Elf Home One, written by Wen Spencer, narrated by Tanya Eby. Chapter One Life Debt The wargs chased the elf over Pittsburgh Scrap and Salvage's tall chain link fence shortly after the hyperphase gate powered down. Tinker had been high up in the crane tower, shuffling cars around the dark, sprawling maze of her scrapyard, trying to make room for the influx of wrecks shutdown day always brought in. Her cousin, Oil Can, was out with the flatbed wrecker, clearing their third call of the night, and it wasn't shut down proper yet. Normally, clearing space was an interesting puzzle game, played on a gigantic scale. Move this stripped car to the crusher, consolidate two piles of engine blocks, lightly place a new acquisition onto the tower of two B-stripped vehicles. She had waited until too late, though, tinkering in her workshop with her newest invention. Shuffling the scrap around at night was proving nearly impossible, starting with the crane's usual clumsy handling. Its ancient fishing pole design and manual controls often translated the lightest tap into a several-foot movement of the large electromagnet strung off the boom. She also had to factor in the distorted shadows thrown by the crane's twin floodlights, the deep pools of darkness, and the urge to rush, since shutdown was quickly approaching. Worse yet, the powerful electromagnet was accumulating a dangerous level of magic— a strong ley line ran through the scrapyard, so using the crane always attracted some amount of magic. She had invented a siphon to drain off the power to a storage unit, also of her own design. The prolonged periods of running the crane were overwhelming the siphon's capacity. Even with taking short breaks with the magnet turned off, the accumulated magic writhed a deep purple about the disc and boom. At ten minutes to midnight, she gave up and shut down the electromagnet. The electric company changed over from the local Pittsburgh power grid to the national grid to protect Pittsburgh's limited resources from the spike in usage that shutdown brought. She had no reason to risk dropping a car sixty feet onto something valuable because some yachts flipped a switch early. So she sat and waited for shutdown, idly kicking her steel-tipped boots against the side of the crane's control booth. Her scrapyard sat on a hill overlooking the Ohio River. From the crane, she could see the barges choking the waterway, the West End Bridge snarled with traffic, and ten or more miles of rolling hills in all directions. She also had an unobstructed view of the full elf home moon, 
rising up through the veil effect on the eastern horizon. The distortion came from the hyperphase, lightly holding its kidnapping victim, a 50-mile diameter chunk of Earth complete with parts of downtown Pittsburgh, prisoner in the foreign dimension of Elfholm. The veil shimmered like heat waves over the pale moon face, nearly identical to that of Earth's own moon. Ribbons of red and blue danced in the sky along the rim's curve, the collision of realities mimicking the Borealis effect. Where the rim cut through the heart of Pittsburgh, just a few miles southeast, the colors gleamed brilliantly. They paled as the rim arced off, defining the displaced landmass. Beyond the rim, the dark forest of Elfholm joined the night sky, black meeting black, the blaze of stars the only indication where the first ended and the second began. So much beauty. Part of her hated going back to Earth, even for a day. Pittsburgh, however, needed the influx of goods that shutdown day brought. The North American counterpart of Elfholm was lightly populated and couldn't support a city of 60,000 humans. Off in the west, somewhere near the idle airport, a firework streaked skyward and boomed into bright flowers of color. The advent of shutdown providing the grounded airplane crews with an excuse to party. Another firework followed. Between the whistle and thunder of the fireworks, the impatient hum of distant traffic, the echoing blare of tugboat horns, the shushing of the siphon still draining magic off the electromagnet, and the thumping of her boots. She nearly didn't hear the wargs approaching. A howl rose, harsh and wild, from somewhere toward the airport. She stilled her foot, then reached out with an oil-stained finger to snap off the siphon. The shushing died away, and the large disc at the end of the crane boom started to gleam violet again. In a moment of relative silence, she heard a full pack in voice, their prey in sight. While the elfin rangers killed the packs of wargs that strayed too close to Pittsburgh, one heard their howling echoing up the river valleys quite often. This sound was deeper, though, than any wargs she'd heard before, closer to the deep-chest roar of a saurus. As she tried to judge how close the wargs were, and more important if they were heading in her direction, St. Paul started to ring midnight. Oh, no, not now, she whispered, as the church bells drowned out the hoarse baying. Impatiently, she counted out the peals. Ten, eleven, twelve. In another dimension, infinitesimally close, and mind-bogglingly far, the Chinese powered down their hyperphase gate in geosynchronous orbit and yanked Pittsburgh back off the world of Elfholm. Returning to Earth reminded Tinker of being on the edge of sleep and having a sensation of falling so real that she would jerk back awake, flat in bed, so she couldn't actually have fallen anywhere. The gate turned off, the universe went black and fell away, and then snap, she was sitting in the crane's operating chair, eyes wide open, and nothing had moved. But everything had changed. A hush came with shutdown. The world went silent and held its breath. All the city lights were out. The Pittsburgh power grid shut down. The aurora dancing along the rim dissipated, replaced by the horizon-hugging gleam of light pollution. As if a million bonfires had been lit, a storm wind whispered through the silent darkness, stirred up as the weather fronts coming across Ohio collided with the returning Pittsburgh air. 
On the wind came a haze that smudged what had been crystalline sky. Oh, goddammit, you would think that after 20 years they would figure out a saner way of doing this. Let's get the power back on. Come on. The wargs took voice again, only a block away and closing fast. Was she safe in the crane? If the oncoming menace had been a Saurus, she'd say she was safe on the high tower. For while the Saurus was a nightmarish cousin of the dinosaur, it was a natural creature. Apparently designed as weapons of mass destruction in some ancient magical war, wargs were far more than pony-sized wolves. It was quite possible they could climb. But could she make it to her workshop trailer, the walls and windows reinforced against such a possible attack? Tinker dug into the big side pocket of her carpenter pants, took out her night goggles, and pulled them on. In the greenwash of the goggles' vision, she then saw the elf. He was coming at her over the burned-out booster rockets, dead cars, and obsolete computers. Behind him, the wargs checked at the high chain-link fence of the scrapyard. She got the impression of five or six of the huge, wolf-like creatures as they milled there, probably bulking more at the metal content of the fence than at its twelve-foot height or the additional three-foot razor-wire crown. Magic and metal didn't mix. Even as she whispered, just leave, give up, the first warg backed up, took a running start at the fence, and leaped it, clearing it by an easy three or four feet. Oh, shit! Tinker yanked on her gloves, swung out of the open control cage, and slid down the ladder. Sparks, she whispered, hoping the backup power had kicked in on her computer network. Is the phone online? No, boss, came the reply on her headset. The AI annoyingly chipper. Her fuel cell batteries kept her computer system operational. Unfortunately, the phone company wasn't as reliable. That her security programs needed a dial tone to call the police was a weakness she'd have to fix. But until then, she was screwed. Shit, they could build a hyperphase gate in geostationary orbit and put a man in the seas of Europa, but they couldn't get the damn phones to work on shutdown day. Sparks, open a channel to the wrecker. Done, boss. Oil can? Can you hear me? Oil can. Damn, her cousin was out of the wrecker's cab. She paused, waiting to see if he would answer, then gave up. Sparks, at two-minute intervals, repeat following message. Oil can, this is Tinker. I've got trouble, big trouble. Get back here. Bring cops. Send cops. I'll probably need an ambulance, too. Get me help. Hurry. End message. Okay, boss. She landed at the foot of the ladder. A noise to her left made her look up. The elf was on one of the tarp-covered shuttle booster rockets, pausing to draw his long, thin sword, apparently deciding to stop and fight. Six to one. It would be more a slaughter than a fight. That fact alone would normally make her sick. Worse, though, she recognized the elf, Windwolf. She didn't know him in any personal sense. Their interaction had been limited to an ironically similar situation five years ago. Asaurus had broken out of its cage during the May Day Fair, chewing its way through the frightened crowd. In a moment of childish stupidity, she'd attacked it, wielding a tire iron. She had nearly gotten herself killed. A furious Windwolf had saved her and cast a spell on her, 
placing a life debt on her essence, linking her fate with his. If her actions got him killed, she would die too. Or at least that's what Tulu said the spell would do. Sane logic made her question the old half-elf. Why would Winwolf save her only to doom her? But Winwolf was an elf noble, thus one of the arrogant Damana caste, and one had to keep in mind that elves were alien creatures, despite their human appearance. Just look at loony old Tulu. And according to crazy Tulu, the life debt had never been cancelled. Of all the elves in Pittsburgh, why did it have to be Windwolf? Oh, Tinker, you're screwed with all capital letters, she muttered to herself. Her scrapyard ran six city blocks, a virtual maze of exotic junk. She had the advantage of knowing the yard intimately. The first warg charged across the top of a pat bus, sitting next to the booster rockets. The polymer roof dimpled under its weight. The beast left hubcap-sized footprints in its wake. Windwolf swung his sword, catching the huge creature in its midsection. Tinker flinched, expecting blood and viscera. Despite their magical origin, wargs were living creatures. Along the savage cut, however, there was a crackling brilliance like electrical discharge. For a second, the warg's body flashed from solid flesh to the violet, intricate, circuit-like pattern of a spell. That gleaming rune-covered shell hung in midair, outlining the mass of the warg. She could recognize various subsections, expansion, increase vector, artificial inertia. Inside the artificial construct hung a small dark mass, an animal acting like the hand inside of a puppet. She couldn't identify the controlling beast, shrouded as it was by the shifting lines of spell, but it looked only slightly larger than a house cat. What the hell? Then the spell vanished back to the illusionary flesh, reforming the appearance of a great dog. The monster rammed Windwolf in a collision of bodies, and they went tumbling down off the rocket. These creatures weren't wargs, nor were they totally real. They weren't flesh-and-blood animals, at least not on the surface. Someone had done a weird illusionary enhancement, something along the lines of a solid hologram. If she disrupted the spell, the monsters should be reduced back to the much smaller and hopefully less dangerous animal providing the intelligence and movement to the construct. And she had to try something quick before the pseudo-war killed Windwolf. She ran twenty feet to a pile of sucker pools brought in last year from a well-salvaged job. They were fifteen feet long, but only two inches thick, making them light but awkward. More importantly, they were at hand. She snatched one up, worked her hands down it until she had a stiff spear of five feet fed out in front of her, and then ran toward the fight. The monster had Windwolf pinned to the ground. Up close, there was no mistaking the weird-looking thing for a standard wolfish warg. While equally massive, the vaguely dog-like creature was square-jawed and pug-nosed, with a mane and a stubbed tail of thick, short, curly hair. The monster dog had Windwolf by the shoulder and was shaking him hard. The elf had lost his sword and was trying to draw his dagger. Tinker put all her speed and weight into punching the pole tip through the dog's chest. She hoped that even if the pole failed to penetrate, she might be able to knock the monster back off of Windwolf. 
As she closed, she wondered at the wisdom of her plan. The thing was huge. She never could remember that she was a small person. She had unconsciously used Winwolf as a scale and had forgotten that he was nearly a foot taller than she. This is going to hurt me more than it, she thought, and slammed the pole home. Amazingly, there was only a moment of resistance, as if she had struck true flesh, and then the spell parted under the solid metal, and the pole sank up to her clenched hands. The beast shifted form back to the gleaming spell. Both the spell form and the creature within reeled in pain. Luckily, someone had been careless in the sensory feedback limit. She reached down the pole, grabbed hold at the eight-foot mark, and shoved hard. The pole speared through the massive spell form, bursting out through the heavily muscled back near the rear haunch. The dog shrieked, breath blasting hot over her, smelling of smoke and sandalwood. It lifted a front foot too bad at her. She saw, too late to react, that the paw had five-inch claws. Before it could hit her, though, Windwolf's legs scissored around her waist, and she found herself airborne, sailing toward the side of the booster rocket. I was right. This is going to hurt. But then Windwolf plucked her out of the air on his way up to the top of the rocket. The crane's floodlights snapped on. The transfer of Pittsburgh to the national power grid apparently now complete, and spotlighted them where they landed. Beyond the fence, the rest of the city lights flickered on. Fool, Windwolf growled, dropping her to her feet. It would have killed you. They were nearly the exact words he had said during their battle with the Saurus. Were they fated to replay this drama again and again? If so, his next words would be for her to leave. Windwolf grunted, pushing her behind him. Run. There was her cue. Coming across the booster rocket were three of the monstrous dogs, the poly-coated tarp insulating their charge. Enter monsters, stage right. Exit brave heroine, stage left, in a dash and jump for the crane ladder. What disrupted magic better than a length of steel was magnetism. With the power back on, the crane was operational. If she could get up to it and switch on the electromagnet, the dogs were toast. Through the bars of the ladder, she could see a fourth monster coming across the scrapyard, leaping from non-conductive pile to non-conductive pile, like a cat transversing a creek via stepping stones. She was twenty feet from the cage when it landed on the crane trusses and started up after her and she had thought herself so clever in using ironwood instead of steel to build the crane tower. Ah, oh, damn, my stupid luck. She frantically scrambled up the rungs, fighting panic now. She was forty feet up. Falling would be bad. The dog was being equally cautious, taking the time to judge its jump before making it. She climbed fifteen feet before it took its first leap, landing nearly where she had been when it first reached the crane. It reared and stretched out its front legs, claws extended, trying to fish her down off the steel ladder without actually touching metal. She climbed frantically up and into the crane's mostly wood cage. She slapped on the power button and fumbled wildly through the dark interior for a weapon, tipping toward panic. With the scrabble of claws on wood, the monster landed on the window ledge. Her hand closed on the portable radio. No. Well, maybe. She flung it at the massive head. The toolkit followed. 
She snatched up the fire extinguisher as the monster growled and reached out for her like a cat with a cornered mouse. Cat? Dog? What the hell were these things? She'd have to figure it out later. It would bug her until she knew. She started to throw the fire extinguisher and then caught herself. These things seemed to have full sensory feedback. Flipping the fire extinguisher, she yanked out the pin, pressed the lever, and unloaded the foam into the monster's face. The creature jerked back, teetering on the edge as it rubbed a paw at its foam-covered eyes. She changed her grip on the extinguisher, hauled back, and then nailed the dog with a full roundhouse swing to the head. There was a nice, satisfying clang, a wail of terror, a brief, fast scramble of claws, and then it fell. With luck, it wouldn't land on its feet. She jumped to the crane controls. She had to lean way out to see Windwolf at the foot of the crane as she swung the boom around. Three of the monster dogs had him down, tearing at him like a rag doll. Was she too late? Oh, gods, let this work. She activated the electromagnet, hit the siphon to drain off magic to the magic sink, and dropped the disc as fast and close as she dared onto the tight knot of bodies. Luckily, Windwolf and the dogs were on the booster rocket, which was far too big to be lifted by the electromagnet. The illusionary flesh of the dogs shifted to semi-transparent shells. The spells unraveled, their power sucked away by the magnet, dropping the small animals controlling the monsters onto the rocket. Dogs. Small, ugly, pug-nosed dogs. Not much bigger than alley cats. Still, they launched themselves at Windwolf, barking and growling. She swore, swung out of the crane's cage, and slid down the ladder. As she landed, she saw a huge dark figure coming at her. Shit, the monster dog she'd smacked out the window. She raced for the booster rocket with the electromagnet still hovering over it, magic wreathing about the black disc. She could smell the dog's smoky breath, feel it blasting furnace hot against her back. With a strange clinical detachment, she remembered that cats killed their prey by biting down and breaking their necks. What did dogs do? The dog hit her. She flung her hands back to protect her neck, and the massive jaws closed on her left hand. She screamed as they tumbled onto the ground. Gunshots cracked and echoed over the scrapyard as the dog shook its head, ravaging her hand. Help, she screamed to the unknown shooter. Help me! With a sharp crack, a bullet caught the dog in the center of its forehead, snapping its head backward. The flesh vanished to spell form, flaring deep violet, as the steel blasted through it. The dog released her hand, and she dropped to the ground. Immediately, she half-crawled, half-stumbled for the booster rocket. The shooter fired again and again. She glanced back as she ran. The bullet struck the dog in a quick, sharp hail, punching it backward. The runes flared with each shot, giving lightning flashes of the dog within, a vulnerable heart to the monstrous construct. The spell form, however, was robbing the bullets of their velocity and diverting them from a straight path. The monster came on the dog within, unharmed. Sobbing in pain and fear, she hit the side of the booster rocket and clawed desperately for a handhold, leaving bloody smears with her savaged hand. The monster launched itself at her and hit the electromagnet's radius of influence. The spell flashed brilliantly and then unraveled, 
the magic fraying upward in momentarily visible violet particles. The small ugly dog within landed at Tinker's feet, growling. Oh, you're so dead, she told it, and kicked it hard with her steel-toe boot. The dog landed a dozen feet away, struggled to its feet, and fled, yelping. And it's good. Tinker held her hands up like a referee judging a field goal. And the fans go wild. Tinker, Tinker, Tinker. Elation lasted only a minute. The numbness in her hand gave way to pain. The wound bled at an alarming rate, though she suspected any rate would be frightening. Blood just had a way of being upsetting. And there was still Windwolf to save. Sparks? Yeah, boss? Is the phone working yet? No dial tone, boss. Her luck, the phone company would only get the phones online an hour before startup. She struggled through cutting up her oversized shirt with her Swiss army knife, reducing it down to a midriff. She had an individually wrapped feminine hygiene pad in her pants pocket. They make good sterile bandages in such emergencies and held twice their weight in motor oil. She cut the pad in half and used her shirt to tie the two halves tight to either side of her bleeding hand. Not a great job, but it would have to do. She walked around to the front of the booster rocket and clambered up the twelve feet to its top. Windwolf lay sprawled in a pool of blood. The ugly, pug-faced dogs lay around him, dead. As she checked Windwolf's pulse, his almond eyes opened, recognized her, and closed. The wounds that the dogs had inflicted on him were hideous. She needed to swallow hard to keep her stomach down. She noticed an empty shoulder holster tucked under his arm. Oh yeah, someone had shot the dog before it could kill her. She glanced about for his gun and finally thought to look up. An automatic pistol and a dozen shell cases were tacked to the bottom of the magnet. Windwolf was the shooter who'd saved her. That was the first installment of Tinker by Wynn Spencer. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Les Johnson, Ken Roy, KS Daniels, and DJ Butler for joining us today. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David Afshirerod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.